Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from Policy Matters Ohio about the state's tax policies and proposed changes to them. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10-TV, Tracy Townsend takes a look at the train derailment in East Palestine, a Northwest Ohio woman's triumphant win over an opioid addiction, and Richard Solomon profiles Justin Swain, a black opera singer from Columbus. And in about 50 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families, about young men who are disconnecting from society. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Guillermo Bervahicho, who is a state policy fellow. He has a Ph.D. He's with Policy Matters Ohio. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, tell us what Policy Matters Ohio is. Policy Matters Ohio is a nonpartisan, a nonprofit think tank. Uh, we are you know, based in Columbus, but also in Cleveland. We do all sorts of uh, uh, research and analysis around topics that, affect everyday people and we try to kind of get the voice out at, at the state house and, and in the media where possible uh, about the kinds of policies that would make a, a thriving Ohio a more more prosperous Ohio. A lot of people like to uh, compare Policy Matters Ohio with the Buckeye Institute in the way that Buckeye tends to be more conservative and Policy Matters tends to be more liberal. Would that be a fair assessment? I, I mean, you know, these notions of liberal and conservative are a little bit outdated, I'd say, nowadays. Our stance is that we are more interested in what benefits people, everyday people, and I think the Buckeye Institute could potentially be more interested in corporate interests and in businesses and stuff, and uh, I think that's probably the division of these kinds of things. Okay, and uh, you are out with uh, a study on something that Governor DeWine brought up in his State of the State address just a few weeks ago when he talked about a $2,500 per child state tax deduction. I take it that didn't land well with you. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, in a State of the State address, you know, Governor DeWine proposed this idea of the $2,500 per child state tax deduction. And when he said it, he kind of, you know, did one of those pauses and and let people cheer for him or clap. And and it, it, it seemed like his goal was to get people to, you know, really get behind it and get excited about it. Uh, but when you start looking into the details, it's either malintentioned or just very poorly designed. So I'm, I'm not sure which of the two it is, but it was immediately obvious to me that, that it being a, a deduction instead of a, a credit was uh, was problematic, and then you know as soon as I started looking at the at the details of it, it just like it just became very obvious that that this is a, a poorly designed and expensive idea. When I heard it at first, it uh, it my eyebrows went up because I thought, boy, that is significant. And then I thought, wait a minute, he said deduction, not credit, and a credit would be in effect a twenty five hundred dollar check, whereas a deduction is far different than that. Exactly, exactly. So that's the biggest, the, the, you know, the devil's in the details, as they say. It's, it's, it's the big distinction between a deduction and a credit. A deduction reduces your taxable income, so the amount of income that you're taxed on, whereas a credit is directly affecting your tax liability, the amount that you owe to the state. So, you know, sure, 2500 sounds like a lot, but once you start putting it through the calculations of how that affects your actual tax bill, you realize that it, uh, it, it, first of all, it doesn't affect a lot of people. A lot of the people who need it most. And the people who it does affect, it's, it's 
it's almost negligible. It's such a small amount. According to your study, you're saying that for a very significant number of low-income families, it has absolutely no impact at all. That's right. So, you know, this who, who needs this kind of support? It's low-income families who, who it would really make a difference to have a few hundred extra bucks to, you know, pay for basic necessities. Basically, anybody who doesn't already pay income taxes gets nothing from this policy. That means anybody below $26,000 yearly income makes nothing from this. But actually, it's even more people than that because once you factor in deductions and these other calculations, there is a certain amount of people who who fall below the threshold. And so really for families below $30,000, they won't see a dime from this child tax deduction. So along with this, he was talking about eliminating the sales tax, the state sales tax for things like diapers and formula, even though we're talking about a 5% sales tax. That's more significant than this for a lot of those families. Um, Actually, in the same way that the deduction doesn't benefit the people who need the income most, much the same thing could be said about this exemption for uh, uh, infant care products. So when we think about a sales tax exemption, you ask yourself who's going to benefit most from this it's whoever spends most money on those items so for example if you are getting you know used items like a used stroller from a friend or uh you know used clothes from once upon a child or one of these kinds of you you know the more you use used things or get things as gifts the less you're going to benefit from the uh, sales tax exemption so who get who get who's going to benefit most from this the sales tax exemption it's the people who buy the highest brand the you know the top brand item who buy everything new and who buy a lot of things so uh once again like it, it's a poorly tar- targeted tax policy and and i'd say one more thing about the deduction not only do families below 30,000 make nothing from it um as you get wealthier, as your income goes up, you get more from that child tax deduction. So the people who need it the least get the most in this kind of like absurd oversight of the designers, I guess, but maybe they meant it like that. And, and, and then one more thing that perhaps isn't obvious is that there's, it's very clear that it was poorly designed because once you start looking at the child tax deduction, you realize that it does this weird thing where it moves over kind of this kink in the in the income tax system where the people who are right on the threshold of paying no taxes or paying a little bit of taxes suddenly get a much more significant benefit um, from this child deduction than everybody else. So there's, you know, for a very, very small minority of people, according to how many dependents you have, you can actually benefit up to nearly $400 from this child deduction. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's totally just an, you know, an artifact of the math, but uh, it kind of proves the point that whoever put this together didn't really know uh, what he was doing. Uh, talking with Guillermo Bervahisho, he is a state policy fellow with Policy Matters Ohio. Well, this kind of runs right alongside Policy Matters Ohio's longtime criticism of these state income tax cuts that have been going on for better than a decade in Ohio. Your organization has long been critical of that. Yes. So we have an upside-down tax system in Ohio, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a product of decades of very poor policymaking. Um, it, currently in Ohio, the poorest people pay a higher share of their income in taxes than the wealthiest Ohioans do. Um, 
and the tax changes that have occurred over the past you know two decades have basically saved the wealthiest ohioans the wealthiest one percent about fifty one thousand dollars per year so the, you know the the cost of a of a luxury car or something like that uh, on the other hand the poorest ohioans are on average um paying you know a hundred fifty two hundred dollars more now than they were in 2005. Wow. So the people on the low end of the income tax scale are paying more while the richest Ohioans have saved tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're paying more relative to 2005, and they pay more relative to uh, their income. Interesting. There's other tax policies in Ohio also that are being proposed that you don't like as well, right? That's right. So I think this is critical, critical for listeners to pay attention to. Uh, the top priority bill in the new uh, General Assembly, House Bill 1, it's called, is a pretty uh, outrageous tax cut for the wealthy. Um, it's, according to our calculations, and then we've received um, some estimates from the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy, it's going to cost about $2 billion. What House Bill 1 proposes to do, at least, is to uh, do away with our progressive income tax, the income tax that is uh, the rates are tied to your capacity to pay. And it institutes a across the board 2.75% tax rate, which basically translates to um, a huge tax savings for the wealthiest Ohioans and absolutely no impact on uh, the bottom 50% of Ohio. Um, House Bill 1 is a profound threat to the communities uh, across the state that uh, are in most need of infrastructure investment, of all kinds of services, all kinds of public institutions that depend most on public institutions. Part of what they're going to do is they're going to offset the cost of $2 billion, more than $2 billion, by changing the property tax scheme. And what that's going to mean is that $1.2 billion uh, roughly will come out directly from uh, public schools and other uh you know, local level institutions that are, you know, critical to basic needs. They'll have to cut, you know, firefighters, uh, libraries, all these kinds of basic necessities. Um, and uh, the other portion we'll have to, put, at least if we judge from, you know, prior experience as we've seen in other states, we'll have to come from increased sales taxes and excise taxes, all the kinds of taxes that fall heaviest on working class Ohioans who dedicate a larger proportion of their income to, um, to consumption. According to the math that I've been doing, household families with, that make about $50,000 a year will get less than $3 of tax savings. Hmm. On the other hand, a family, a, a single individual earning half a million dollars per year will make upwards of $5,000 in tax cuts uh, every year. Talking with Guillermo Bervahicho, he is a state policy fellow with Policy Matters Ohio. These changes, if you don't like them, what is your take on the current state taxation formula in Ohio, and, and what would you recommend as ways to improve it uh, that would be fair and, and still keep the state funded? Yeah, so this is something that I think is pretty um, self-explanatory to most people. The polling that we've seen and that we've done, uh, somewhere near seven in every 10 uh, individuals and in, in every Ohio, in, uh, Ohioans support 
taxing millionaires, taxing the wealthy Ohioans in accordance to their capacity to pay. Uh, you know, seven out of 10 Ohioans support increasing taxes on the wealthiest Ohioans. So that's where we start, right? It, it's just make sure that everybody pays in accordance to, uh, you know, how much benefit they've gotten out of society. If you've had the privilege to, you know, benefit from society, then you should pay in accordance with, with that benefit. Um, I think uh, there's a couple other things. Uh, we have 154 tax expenditures in Ohio. That means laws that direct our what would be tax revenue uh, back to special interests through, uh, you know, uh, credits, deductions, exemptions, all these kinds of things. Some of them are, you know, well-intentioned, but a lot of them end up, in the, end up returning tax dollars to wealthy Ohioans. Um, and it adds up to $11 billion per year. So that would be an extra 30% or roughly 30% of total state revenues that is just kind of returned to uh, special interests. And one could say maybe that there's some need for some of these tax expenditures. Maybe we, we have some, but we don't know because we don't actually have a committee that reviews those tax expenditures. And they don't sunset. Most laws, most things that you legislate in Ohio at the State House, when you, you know, want to do a program, you can fund it for a couple years and then it sunsets and it, it you know, the law expires and so you need to gather funding for it again. Tax expenditures don't sunset. They go on into eternity and they keep adding up and adding up and we you know, we have some tax expenditures that haven't been reviewed for decades and we don't even know who's getting the benefit out of it or how much it's truly costing the state. So that's one thing is, you know, we need to do away with loopholes. In particular, there's the LLC loophole, which ostensibly is is a incentive to business. But in truth, it's just an accounting trick that benefits people who are, have the capacity to pay for accountants. And then uh, child deduction that DeWine proposed, it, it's, you know, when we were talking about the deductions versus credits, there are some tax credits that could be very uh, impactful for low-income families and households, working Ohioans, people who need the support, who are, you know, struggling in, in this, like, post-pandemic era, you know, from Appalachia to, to Cleveland. Uh, we've, we've proposed a, a thriving families tax credit kind of based on the child tax credit uh, that was so successful in 2021. You can look at it on our website, but basically the way that we break it down, it would benefit families on average about $1,000. And if you, the way you could pay for it is by closing this LLC loophole accounting trick that, uh, you know, mostly benefits wealthy Ohioans and doesn't translate into jobs or opportunities. Well, Governor uh, Mike DeWine has said that he does not agree with a policy that would eliminate the state income tax altogether, which was something Governor Kasich uh, wanted to see happen over time. Governor DeWine has said, without any kind of a state income tax at all, he doesn't see a way to fund programs that are funded through it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, you know, we've done, we've been looking at what uh, other states with flat taxes or with no income taxes have done, and it's almost always uh, benefits the rich. Uh, I, actually, I think always benefits the rich uh, across the board and hurts the hurts working class people um you have to make up for it you have to make up for that that revenue shortfall in some way 
um, and usually it, it falls on sales taxes, all these kinds of taxes that low-income Ohioans would pay a higher share of their income in rather than the wealthy. Why is that? It's because you can only buy so many things. You can only buy so many gallons of milk. You can only have, you know, so many clothes. So it, there's a reducing, you know, the wealthiest Ohioans will pay a reduced share of their income in those taxes. Now, some people who are knowledgeable about this will point to, uh, you know, Florida or, or Texas or something like this. Uh, there are some states that don't have taxes, but the fact of the matter is that in each one of those situations, we can point to something that is allowing that state to continue to function. For example, Florida has a lot of uh, tourism, and their sales taxes are high. They're able to benefit from that. Texas is one of the largest oil-producing places in the world, and they have a very high severance tax that pays for almost everything, or we have a very, very low severance tax. And uh, basically, we don't have the capacity to do what these other states have uh, unless we drastically cut services, drastically cut funding for children, for for uh, health, for all the basic needs of, of, of thriving communities, and increase the taxes that are paid uh, largely by working class people. Um, the, the other thing I'd say about this is the elements that make a community thrive have to do with health, education, uh, uh, the equitable distribution of resources. It has to do with the capacity for people to, to thrive. And we have this mistaken notion that by cutting taxes, we're going to somehow bring in, uh, you know, some hypothetical external investor is going to come in and just throw their money around. The fact of the matter is that over the past 20 years, we've been cutting taxes and Ohio has been suffering, right? It has not been able to provide the basic needs for many, many, many uh, communities across the state. When external investors come in and put in some money, what they're looking for primarily are the kind of infrastructural uh, resources that can allow them to thrive as a business. Intel Corporation, for example, which is investing here in central Ohio, um, you know, they've made it clear in all their public statements that the reason they came to Ohio was because of the level of education, because of the infrastructure, because of the availability of water, the logistics of it. And you know what, like every empirical research that I've read, every empirical study that I've read about the impact of tax um, cuts on this kind of like corporate investment shows that it's only an afterthought. The little tiny margin that state taxation can affect a, a business decision to where to locate is only an afterthought. And it, it, when we do the empirical studies, we show that business location doesn't follow those kinds of tax cuts. Talking with Guillermo Bervahisho. He is a state policy fellow with Policy Matters Ohio. Just a couple minutes to go here. I did want to throw something past you. If I have an income in Ohio of a million dollars a year, I do pay a higher tax rate than somebody who makes 50000 And so you mentioned that 70% of Ohioans favor increasing taxes for the wealthy. And yet, you know, when you talk about uh, fair taxation, is that fair if you do that? Absolutely. So first of all, if you make over $600,000 in this, in this state, you are in the 1%. So this is, this is a very, very 
select group of people that has the capacity to be in that position. Now, let's also be very clear about why people are wealthy. People are wealthy when they have been able to take advantage of the conditions of society, when they've been able to create businesses with educated uh, educated workers, when they've benefited from the, the kind of like legal structures of society. The fact that there's consumers here who have resources to pay for products, you know, all these kinds of things. There is no logical way to understand the economic success of a particular individual without putting it in the context of a, of a, of a community, of a society, of an economy. And that, that economy, that economy depends on the institutions, the infrastructure, the social material infrastructure that is funded by the state. So when somebody makes a million dollars, they do pay a little bit higher income tax rate. Uh, Again, they pay a smaller share of their income in taxes. They pay a little bit higher in income taxes, but they pay less in use taxes, sales taxes, all these kinds of things. So overall, they pay a smaller share of their income in taxes, but they do pay a higher tax rate on their wages. But it's, I would argue that it's, far below what they should be paying and the the people the the economists who studied optimal tax theory uh would argue would argue the same thing i guess uh, one way to kind of look at it too if, if you're very wealthy you could either say that you're privileged or i guess you could argue that you've earned it and in some ways some of the perks that you get in life and i'm thinking like you know you're you're going to get a lower interest rate on anything that you take a loan out on you're going to spend more money, which means you're going to get more rewards through your credit cards, which are freebies that you know lower income folks will never see. And it's things like that that also kind of help push you along on that path of wealth. Yeah, I mean, the wealthy Ohioans have a, an incredible amount of resources to get around taxes when they can. Uh, I'll say one more thing, too. There's this, this notion that um, if you increase taxes, maybe you some people will move or, or move away, the, the, the people who are going to invest or something like that. Empirical studies have shown over and over again that this is way overblown. There are a small group of people who are likely to move because of taxes, but who are those people? Those are the people who are least invested in the state. Those are the people who aren't, who don't have families here, who don't have uh, actual fixed investment, like their businesses aren't physical businesses. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll probably move, but the impact of that moving is uh, much less than what anti-taxers want to make you believe. Yeah, I was going to bring that up earlier, because if you take somebody like LeBron James, if he still lived in Ohio, and if, if he decided that he wanted to live in another state, it just is hard to imagine that somebody worth a billion dollars is going to care about more in taxes that he's paying in one state to another when he might end up paying it in a different way anyway, With depending on how the state works their taxes. That's a perfect example, right? He went from a no-income no tax state, Miami, to a, a medium-income tax state in Ohio to a <laughs> right. high-income tax state in California. Right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. He's been moving more towards, he's been moving towards higher-income uh, taxes. 
And why is he doing that? Is because he has an investment in uh, a industry, which is the basketball industry. Like he, you know, if he was just a financier, uh, just moving numbers around here and there, yeah, he could move around. It wouldn't. He wouldn't care. But he does care where he is because it has to do with the fan base, with the consumer base, with the uh, with the kind of like infrastructure, the commercial deals that might uh, occur from it. And and you know, LeBron James and any good businessman or businesswoman is somebody who's embedded in the community, somebody who's contributing to the community in a significant way. Talking with Guillermo Bervajicio, he's a state policy fellow with Policy Matters Ohio. If people want to see some of this information on the Policy Matters Ohio website, where do they find it? Yeah, so it's policymattersohio.org. Look for us there. Look for us on Twitter and TikTok. We're all over the place. And um, reach out to me individually if you have any questions or complaints about this. But, uh, again, this is crucial stuff. This is affecting all kinds of people and everywhere across the state. So I, I really encourage you to stay focused. It's always uh, real interesting stuff. Uh, again, Guillermo Bervahisho, Policy Matters Ohio. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Have a good day. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. and thank you for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. We start with an in-depth look at that fallout from the train derailment in East Palestine. It's been weeks since the train carrying dangerous chemicals derailed and leaked. This is raising questions about the safety of the drinking water and the air. Governor Mike DeWine and other state leaders tried to address those concerns and put it back on Norfolk Southern to make it right. Southern, Southern is responsible for this problem. Uh, we fully expect them uh, to live up to what the CEO committed to me, and that is that they will pay for everything. Uh, if they don't, we run attorney general here and that will file a lawsuit. So, look, they're responsible for this. They did it. Um, you know, uh, this is a, a, you know, the impact on this community is huge. Um, the not just the physical uh, problem that might be caused, but uh, the, the inconvenience, uh, the, the terror, um, many, many things. So, yes, uh, you know, we've already seen lawsuits filed. I'm sure there'll be more lawsuits filed. Even though some rail cars did have hazardous material on board, uh, and while most of them did not, that's why it was not categorized as a high hazardous material train. Uh, frankly, uh, if this is true, and I'm told it's true, uh, this is absurd. Uh, and we need to look at this. Uh, and Congress needs to take a take a look at how these things are handled. The U.S. EPA administrator visited East Palestine this week, trying to ease the concerns of the people who live there. The residents of East Palestine experienced a terrible, terrible incident with the derailment of train cars carrying hazardous substances. This incident has understandably shaken this community to its core, forcing families to temporarily leave their homes, worry about their health and safety of their children, and even question the information that they're receiving from all of us. 
The community has questions and they deserve answers. I want the community to know that we hear you, we see you, and that we will get to the bottom of this. I'm a father, first and foremost, a husband and the son of parents over the age of 70. All families need to know that they are safe. All families deserve access to clean air and safe drinking water. I am asking that they trust uh, the government, uh, and that's hard. We know that there is a lack of trust, which is why the state and the federal government have pledged to be very transparent. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance both went to the small town to talk with the people who are impacted. J.D. Vance says he's working on legislation to prevent problems like this from happening in the future. I, I don't want to let Congress off the hook here because Congress can legislate a solution to this problem, and that's exactly what I'm going to try to do. Uh, we should have some legislation coming out to that effect here in the next few days. But look, the Department of Transportation can act on this issue, too. This is a regulatory problem and a legal problem. So the Department of Transportation could implement regulations that would have these trains declared high hazardous. I think they should do that. It is frightening. It's a frightening situation. And my guidance to people is to continue to drink the bottled water. Um, we, we don't know. I mean, look, people say that the air is clean. The air problem, I think, is a much shorter-term problem than the water problem. Uh, but we have to make sure long-term we're testing the air, we're testing the water, and again, we're trying to understand what level of chemical is dangerous to people. Democrats at the State House got together with environmental representatives, health leaders, and first responders, and they talked through some of the questions they say they still feel are unanswered. And they came up with some strategies to try to take action. They say they want to make sure both the state and federal government are offering all of the resources possible on this. And they want to make sure they find ways to strengthen the statewide emergency response to these types of disasters. But the key will be working across the aisle when the Democrats are by far in the minority. We may be small, but we are mighty. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is that this is not a Democrat or a Republican right. issue. This is a human rights, uh, Ohio citizens' right to be feeling safe and secure in their homes. And I believe that, you know, again, we're coming from the perspective of how can we help to augment, how can we help, you know, work with the town area. And so she's also closest to, you know, that particular uh, area of the state. And so what we're looking at is a, as a town that is and the citizens of this town that are being are being hit with a big question mark, not only whether the water is safe to drink, whether the air is safe to breathe, whether or not it's really safe for them to return home just now, because while we're getting reports that uh, things are fine, do we really know that they are? Do we know what the long-term effect is going to be? And now the largest injury firm in the United States is suing Norfolk Southern for medical monitoring for residents. We talked with an attorney from Morgan & Morgan. As far as what we can do, we can help pressure those kinds of institutions, including EPA, including local um, regulatory agencies, to be more transparent about the information that's getting out there because these residents are hearing all clear and they know that's not true. They have bloody noses and skin rashes, and they're sick to their stomachs. You know, you can take a random sample from a random location at a random time with a very high detection limit and not find anything. And he says his clients are already suffering from health issues 
including light nausea, headaches, and skin blisters. He says the train company needs to be held accountable. We've also been hearing so many questions and concerns about the chemicals this train was carrying and both the short-term and long-term effects. 10TV's Brittany Bailey went to an Ohio State University professor who specializes in indoor environmental quality to get some answers. Now people are able to come back to their homes and there's still a lot of open questions in terms of what happened in terms of the chemical release into the environment, where those chemicals went and how long they're likely to persist for. CBS News did a breakdown of some of the chemicals that were on board that train that derailed in East Palestine and their impacts. First up is the vinyl chloride. The colorless gas is used to make PVC and is linked to an increased risk of a rare and deadly form of liver cancer. Officials worried that the burn would lead to hydrogen chloride in the air. But as of Monday, there had been no detections of vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride in the homes screened. Then there was butyl acrylate. It's a combustible liquid that can cause irritation to the eyes, skin, and upper respiratory system. One train car was carrying it and lost its entire load in the derailment. A Cincinnati city manager memo showed low levels of it were found in the Ohio River downstream from the incident. Ethylhexyl acrylate is used to make plastics and is possibly carcinogenic to humans. The one train car that was carrying it was breached and the amount of products still in the car was marked as pending. And finally, there was benzene, a colorless liquid used in making plastics. It is both a carcinogen and a mutagen, meaning it can cause genetic mutations. Benzene was not actively being carried on the train, but there was residue from past shipments. A lot of these chemicals are are fairly short-lived in the body, um, and so they don't tend to persist. Um, they don't tend to persist in the food chain either, like some other chemicals do. So the environmental assessment is probably the most important thing that the EPA can measure to also make sure that they can help prevent these exposures from occurring in the first place. And that was 10TV's Brittany Bailey reporting. This situation also raises some questions about the potential impact on our water and air quality here in Columbus. So far, experts say our area has not and will mostly not be impacted by the derailment because of where our water comes from. 10TV's Ashley Bornanson explains. For Ohio, Columbus is in the middle, and our source water watersheds are here, kind of heading up to the north of Columbus. Rod Dunn, the manager of the Water Quality Assurance Lab for the City of Columbus, says Central Ohio water comes from the Upper Scioto and Big Walnut watersheds, not the Ohio River. He says the water is so safe and clean to drink, you don't even need a filter. I don't filter it. I just fill up water at the tap and add a couple ice cubes because I like it cold. But if there ever was a local spill, they have procedures in place. He says first the Ohio EPA and watershed rangers notify his team. Then we have multiple barriers within treatment that can take that out. Um, like we use powdered activated carbon and it acts like a sponge to absorb any organic car- compounds and then they're precipitated out. Experts from OSU's Agriculture Department also say they are not anticipating our water, air, or fish to be impacted by the event. I don't know whether this is historically the worst uh, uh, ecological events Um, Because we don't know so far, we are still like assessing the whole impact of this event. Columbus Fire says they have a highly trained hazardous material team and work with first responders to tackle these types of situations. We we are prepared for all hazards. We we have um, kits 
to stop leaks on rail cars, on semi-trucks, uh, down to 150-pound cylinders. Um, we can sample. Uh, we can overpack. So we know what hazardous materials are being transported and stored here within our community. And we've been using that information for a number of years. Ashley Bourne Anson reporting for us here on Face the State. Now, if you have concerns about the water quality in Columbus, you're welcome to reach out to the Water Quality Assurance Lab. Still to come this morning on Face the State, beating the stigma to save lives. You'll meet the Ohio figure skater who says her passion saved her. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A $1 million federal grant is going to the Columbus Metropolitan Housing Authority. It's going to launch the Ready, Set, Rise initiative. The two-year pilot program will help hundreds of families who live in public housing get through the so-called benefit cliff, a barrier that keeps many families living in poverty. An individual experiences an increase in their income but that increased income reduces in a large loss in government benefits, overall creating a financial loss for, for the household. Many individuals hit these cliffs as they're pursuing economic self-sufficiency, and it becomes a barrier, almost impossible to proceed without risking housing stability for the family. For more information about CMHA's Ready, Set, Rise initiative, please contact the Rise Center at the email that's on your screen. Construction is underway on a one-of-a-kind treatment facility in Ohio. The group, Volunteers of America, is building the family-focused recovery center in the city. It will, all, it will be ready for mothers who can stay there with their children while getting the help they need to get substance abuse treatment. We see better outcomes when women are able to bring their kids into treatment with them. They're more motivated to stay into treatment and to start a path of recovery. Construction is now underway, funded by a nearly $2 million donation from Humana. When the re renovations are complete, the building will include 34 beds and community spaces, including kitchen, dining, and laundry facilities. The goal is to open early next year. There is a statewide effort to help people People beat the stigma of addiction. It comes in many forms and can take control of anyone's life. Reporter Amanda Fay introduces us to an Ohio woman who nearly lost her life and along with it, her dream. I fell in love with it. It was my passion, so I wanted to do it forever. Forever almost came to an end three years ago for Nicole Horaseski. Her passion? Skating. But a horrific crash in 2020 meant Nicole couldn't even lace up her skates, never mind glide across the ice. Lost the ability to walk. I broke six bones and had emergency surgery, and I couldn't walk for six, um, three, three months. Nicole was driving herself to rehab when she had a seizure from alcohol withdrawal. I never thought I'd skate again. 
Nicole started skating when she was 10, first as an individual skater, and later she joined a synchronized skating team. Drugs and alcohol were far from her mind as a dedicated young athlete. I got away from skating a little bit and got into that, and um, I used it as a stress relief instead of skating as my stress relief and my passion. Um, so... Yeah, I fell into addiction at that point. The addiction sucked the life out of Nicole. She says she was no longer having fun or finding any sort of balance. She went to treatment but didn't give it her all. Her near-death experience became a major wake-up call. Thanks to um, social media and that stigma kind of being broken through a little bit, I saw, you know, that this wasn't that abnormal, that other people had addictions, and it could be somebody who looked like a figure skater or who was a star student. Nicole started going to AA, got a sponsor, got support to get clean. After months and months of physical therapy, she got back on the ice. And then started skating again with her synchronized team, Allegro. We went to the Midwestern sectionals and we placed first. We are Midwestern champions um, and we're going to nationals next month. Nicole also got a job working at a recovery center, helping others through their journey, showing them they are not alone. It's okay to ask for help. Um, it seems very scary and maybe like you're stuck in it, but you're not. You fall and you get back up. But reach out for somebody's hand to help you up. Now, if you or someone you love needs help with addiction, you can get access to 24-hour help. Just call the number on your screen, 1-800-662-HELP. A new status for Narcan, that's a medication used to quickly reverse an opioid overdose. It's now recommended for over-the-counter sale. The Food and Drug Advisory Committee voted unanimously for the recommendation. Committee members heard testimony from experts, including one who cited the increase of fentanyl overdose deaths among teenagers. Last September, researchers at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and College of Medicine reported a 113% increase in the years of life lost among adolescents in the United States because of unintentional drug overdoses. Ohio lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are honoring Black History Month. We will outline the bills they are trying to pass. And we'll introduce you to the Columbus man hitting his dreams by using two scales. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The Senate passed a resolution celebrating Black History Month and the important contributions made by black Americans throughout U.S. history. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown co-sponsored that piece of legislation. Meantime, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty is working on a bill that's aimed at celebrating African-American history in schools. I'm very pleased with this legislation because it also allows us to have students who participate in tours at the African-American Museum to have that as a part of the curriculum. And I think it's so important that we do not get confused with so many states and schools attacking African-American history and Black History Month where we do it. Black history is American history. And wouldn't we want 
our students when we're in the midst still of COVID-19 to know that there was a very young Black researcher who was at the forefront of helping us get through COVID-19? Wouldn't we want our children to know when we talk about justice that there is a Black woman who sits in the highest court in this nation? And wouldn't we want our children to know that there is a vice president of these United States of America that's a Black woman. That's not Black history. That's American history. This Black History Month, 10TV is taking time to highlight music from hip-hop to country. The Black imprint is in many genres. 10TV's Richard Solomon introduces us to a Black opera singer who says the greatest stories can start from the most uncertain circumstances. There's something about the sound of music that's always brought Justin Swain home. You probably are not able to understand the words, but the melody right, absolutely a nice game. goes far beyond what he's singing. I'm classically trained. Um, I've been singing operatically for about the past 10 years. He's performed in symphonies across Ohio for years, and his sound is something you don't normally hear in the black community. I grew up on Motown, yeah. um, listening to Michael Jackson. That was always what was playing in the house, because when we think about the black experience, typically we are not exposed to classical music. And by no means was his journey crystal clear. To really get a grasp of his story, you have to go back to where it starts. In Columbus's hilltop neighborhood, violence and poverty. I lived here at 2278 for seven years. Sometimes overshadow the people who call this neighborhood home. There would be a house here, a sunroom on the, on the left side of the house, a garage back there. I haven't been here in almost 30 years. A hard upbringing. His father, a drug dealer. And Swain didn't know how his future would play out. But it was thanks to several of his teachers who saw a bright future in him. Phil Wallace playing one of the first songs he taught Swain at Columbus West High School. I wanted him to be in music because that's what made him happy. He was just one of his impacts that helped push this young artist to pursuing music. No matter what he was going through or no matter what kind of day he had, the music always saved him. And just as his future was starting to shape up, well, life happened. And I got that phone call from Capitol letting me know four days before I was supposed to move in that one of the need-based scholarships I was not eligible for. He couldn't go to college and ended up walking away from music for some time. Then a few years later, he enrolled here at Columbus State Community College to major in not music, but management technology. Swain had to fill a credit for class and stumbled across music. One of his professors heard him play. From that point on, all of my coursework switched over to music theory and history and uh, composition. And that's what led him all the way here. At Ohio University. When a man puts his mother every Sunday, pays his bills before due. Teaching students of his own, like Colette Alfonso. Just hearing a story 
just like lights a fire under you because it really does show that like anybody can do this. What's the the takeaway of your story? What you are born into does not define who you are. It does not define the path of your life. Where there is a will, there is a way. And we can absolutely quote the great Muhammad Ali, impossible is nothing. That was Richard Solomon reporting. The Ohio Black Expo is coming back in full force. After two years of limited programming because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's going to be at the Columbus Convention Center on Memorial Day weekend. The focus will be on uplifting black-owned businesses and entrepreneurs. This week, organizers talked about what you can expect, including some special guests. Well, the two big names we have right now are KRS-One. Um, we're helping, uh, he's going to help us celebrate 50 years of hip-hop. And uh, also, he's, you know, of course, from uh, the Bronx, the Boogie Down, as he calls it. And uh, we also have uh, the Queen of Percussion, uh, another legend uh, in the entertainment in industry, Sheila E. More than 10,000 people are expected to attend the Black Expo in May. Well, we certainly wish you a great week, and thank you for joining us here on Face the State today. Take care, everybody. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Hi, I'm Dom Tiberi. Nine years ago, we lost our daughter Maria to a distracted driving accident. To honor her life, we have pledged to educate young people on the dangers of distracted driving. We funded simulators and visited schools to inspire more than 120,000 young drivers to stay safe. Help spread Maria's message in your school. Contact us at mariasmessage at 10tv.com. And remember, distracted driving is dangerous driving. Cancer screening can save your life. Begin cervical screening at age 25. At 45, colorectal and breast screening. At 50, discuss lung screening with a doctor. Find resources for free and low-cost screening at cancer.org slash get screen. This is a public service message from the American Cancer Society. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us about Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, we are a nonprofit who works with youth and families in the community. We serve over 7,000 people in Franklin County um, through our counseling services. We also have two after-school centers. And between prior names and who was involved, it's uh, got like a 100-year history, right? Yeah, through, uh, uh, we've been through several mergers and uh, Crittenden Family Services. Um, actually, the Crittenden Center started in Columbus in 1899 as a home for unwed mothers. So that's one of the mergers. Directions for Youth is one. Friends in Action is one. And One to One is one. And the Shortstop Team Drop-In Center. So it's really a, we're a collection of five different agencies over the last uh, hundred uh, plus years. That's great. When we talk to Dwayne, which we try to do about once a month or so, we bring up other topics along the way. And I, and I found an article that I thought was interesting that we would talk about. And it talks about the differences in young men and one, young women in terms of the way they're adapting to society, perhaps especially since the pandemic, and how it seems to show that young men are just kind of wrapping themselves up in social media and porn and games and, and kind of checking out from society. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, the isolation that occurred during the pandemic across the board, I, 
about for everybody. Um, you know, it, it, this went on for a little while. So new behaviors uh, uh, and new patterns emerged. Um, not all patterns that emerge are functional. Some are dysfunctional. Um, you can have healthy patterns. You can have unhealthy ones. Uh, but a lot of them that came from the pandemic moved um, and almost in a, a non-social way. It, it, people got used to being isolated and found other ways to entertain themselves outside of human interaction. More than 60% of young men are single, nearly twice the rate of unattached young women. And this uh, story goes on to say that that doesn't seem to make sense, except that women in their 20s, some of them end up in relationships with men in their 30s, which aren't in the young category. It also says men in their 20s are more likely than women in their 20s to be romantically uninvolved, sexually dormant, friendless, and lonely. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, you know what? It's kind of funny. I, you know, I'm a Redditor, and I know there's all kinds of uh, uh, feeds on Reddit. And there is, um, I, I don't even remember the name of it, but it's a group of people who um, really are almost like asexual. And they, they've almost like uh, um, committed themselves, so that's the way they're going to be. You know, people make a lot of fun of Redditors because um, uh, they say these are people who just sit in their basement and game and don't bathe and eat junk food and uh, look at porn. So, um, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but that almost speaks to the group that you're talking about, that this are uh, so many people became isolated um, and, and they got comfortable with this. And, and so this is what they're doing now. But apparently some of them also angry because it, or, or despondent because it also says young men commit suicide at four times the rate of young women. Younger men are also largely responsible for the rising rates of mass shootings. Yeah, you know, when it, when it comes to even when you look at just suicide as a whole, um, whenever uh, men attempt compared to women, uh, men usually go a very lethal route. Um, so there's almost, in a sense, more successful suicides uh, with that. Yeah, again, the social isolation, there mental health issues across the board, uh, probably in all age groups, um, truly uh, went up through the pandemic. Um, isolation, and we're social human beings, and, and to have that lack of contact with other individuals uh, made it tough. You, you, you know, if you really didn't have close friends before, you probably what ties you did have really waned during uh, uh, the pandemic which then you have no one to bounce things off of. And I always tell people there's all types of, of therapy or counseling or mental health, and some of it can be if you have a healthy support network who is positive and healthy and you can bounce things off of them, that's a form of therapy, you know, group therapy. All these things stopped, um, and I think that that just made it very tough on everyone across the board. Talking with Dwayne Casares, uh, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Seems like one of the scary things about this is I think it's – pretty much a given that men in general have fewer friends than women do. You know, they're not as socially active through their work and other organizations as women. They don't spill their problems to each other like women do in general. And yet men, I think, do that more when they're younger than as they get older. So if they're getting off to this start young and not doing that, that just doesn't bode well at all. Yeah, and part of it is just the roles of what, you know, when we're, we're looking at um, how society defines certain roles. A lot of that was defined a long time ago. You know, men don't do this, men don't do that, men don't do this. Um, uh, first off, those aren't truths. Uh, and, and secondly, there can be a, a lot of uh, detrimental things that come from that. But I think this just escalated that pattern. So you, you think that men are more social than what the uh, kind of the reputation is? No, I think it's, 
they've been socialized not to. They've been socialized not to open up about and talk about their problems or, or be emotional or be sensitive. Um, these are long-standing uh, 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 kind of standards that are just really outdated, but they're still pushed um, at times. It, it's even pushed from, from both sides. I'm not just saying that it's coming from uh, uh, one gender to uh, the other. I mean, both of them are involved. You know, you, you, when you look at the Internet, you'll see people say, you know, let's, I'm not going to date a man who does this or that, or I need a man who's going to be strong. This. So that's just feeding into it. Like, it, it, if you're going to talk about your emotions and that is seen as weak, when the fact of the matter is, when I look at anybody, men or women, who are willing to open up about their emotions and tackle their mental health problems, these are people of great courage. Um, it takes a lot of courage to be able to uh, confront some of the dysfunction that's going on around you, and then actually a lot of courage to take the step to do something about it and get healthy. It's interesting. So when you're saying that, you know, men, by being less social, they're kind of staying in their lane, the way they're expected to act, which is one of the things that you talk about all the time is the danger of normalizing things that are not healthy. Yeah, when you start to normalize things to the point that you no longer recognize that they're dysfunctional, uh, you've kind of moved your gauge. So um, what is normal for you has now shifted. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's shifted in a healthy way. When you surround yourself with other people who are doing the same thing, they're actually validating your behavior. Um, and, and when you do that, then you think, well, then there's nothing wrong with it. So that's how you normalize it. That's how people normalize dysfunctional behavior because they're really gathering around other people who have the same behaviors, which often happens in the Internet. You can find the Internet community for anything. Um, and then that way they validate each other. Talking with Dwayne Casares from Directions for Youth and Families, he's not only the CEO, but he was formerly the clinical director and is a licensed therapist as well. When loneliness is one of the biggest problems that people face, if that enters into a discussion with a therapist or a counselor, how do you fix that? You know, there's many things. One thing is, is you have to make sure that some people are just isolates in general, and they don't necessarily, people who are almost natural isolates, um, they don't have a bigger problem with being lo- alone. They have a bigger problem when they're forced into social situations. So you have to be careful. So everyone's different, and, and there's a continuum in all behaviors. There are some people who are just more isolates in nature. That's a lot different than somebody who was forced into isolation from the pandemic. And now they're trying to embrace a new lifestyle um, just because of how they're coming out of it. Uh, these are two different things. So you have to distinguish that first. Um, we always look at support networks and support systems because uh, no one can do these things in isolation, especially um, if, if you're truly trying to change things and go through a healing process. Uh, it's always important to have um, safety nets and other people that you can turn to. Um, isolation doesn't afford itself that. And, and I think the Internet doesn't necessarily afford itself that in some respects. In other respects, I think in, in some fringe groups, you can find others that are like you, and that can be very, very helpful. But as a whole, um, you, you can open yourself up to a lot of attacks from other people. Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, the Internet and uh, gaming and all that stuff is is perhaps one of the biggest contributors to this problem and yet also offers some pretty dynamic solutions that didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think it's like all relationships. You can have gamers who are healthy and you can have those that aren't so healthy. So, I mean, I know a lot of gamers who uh, I found this weird several years ago. My son and his gaming group took a road trip to meet other people that they had been gaming with for 10 years. I think they were like in Minnesota or, or something like that. 
I looked at my son like, okay, well, that's weird. <laughs> and his best buddy looked at me and goes, to be truthful, I've known them a lot longer than I've known you. Um, and, and that really kind of opened my eyes. It's kind of like, I guess if you're gaming with somebody every week for 10 years, you do get to know them. So, right. um, But those can be healthy relationships. There can be unhealthy ones as well. Talking with Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more info about your agency, Dwayne, how do they find out about it? Uh, they can check us out at dfyf.org. Dwayne Casares, again, thanks for talking to us, Dwayne. We'll see you later. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.